Not always politically correct, but always correct, using only primary source stories of those who were actually there. You're listening to Threads of Liberty. Welcome back. There is some discussion in today's culture about George Washington because he was a slave owner. We can have another podcast in regards to the laws of the land at the time, the period of time that it was, and what was an accepted moray. The question is, in what they call the cancel culture or cancel history, do we keep Washington around or do we cancel his story out? Well, and keeping slaves is an important discussion. I don't want to just slide over that, but this isn't about that particular issue, this podcast today. This podcast is about all of our heroes have flaws. None of us are perfect. You can do a heroic act and be a jerk of a person in some respects. You're not suggesting Washington was a jerk. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that George Washington was a jerk. We know if you study him that he was anything but a jerk. He was a man of honor and integrity. And thank goodness for him during the American Revolution and as our first president. Because, you know, one of the amazing things about Washington, which Europe could not believe, was that he let go of the presidency and didn't become a king, which is tradition that fortunately we are grounded upon. One of the great European leaders said at the time that if Washington really did, turn the power back to the American government after the war, that he was the greatest man that ever lived. Yeah, yeah. If you just study Washington and a number of his qualities and traits, his actions, the life story, you're going to find a fascinating man. So, and, and like I said, not all perfect, but a fascinating man. And so today's podcast is about a small period of time during the American Revolution when they fought the Battle of Trenton, And then the Battle of Princeton and the events that went on there and his bravery in regards to that. So let's launch off into Princeton, but we have to begin with Trenton. Everybody knows about the Battle of Trenton. I don't know if everybody knows about it or not. Almost everybody knows about the Battle of Trenton. (laughs) It took place on Christmas Day, uh, 1776. We've all heard the story. We've seen the picture of Washington standing in the front of the boat as they crossed the Delaware. Washington did not stand in the boat because he would have fallen out. But it's a great picture. It is a great but he picture. and his men crossed that river in frigid temperature. You heard the stories of how they wrapped their feet and you could track where they walked by the marks of the blood that they left in the snow. They got there. They defeated the Hessians, who were the Germans, who the British had left there to be in charge of Trenton. It was the first battle. It picked the Americans up because up to this point, this war was lost. Yeah. So let's just stop there for just a second because we're about how far into the American Revolution? Oh, we're six months into the American Revolution. Six months. We hadn't won a battle yet. Not yet. Not yet. So so Trenton is a a big deal when we win. The 10 days that include two battles of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton are considered to be the 10 most significant days of the war, really, because if we hadn't won those, the war would have ended right there. This happened a number of times throughout the war. So they win at the Battle of Trenton. The Americans are absolutely ecstatic. The British are stunned. Washington then makes a smart move. He pulls back from Trenton because he knows that the British General Cornwallis is going to come after him. They're mad that they lost, but they are offended that these farmers and merchants could actually beat them, as Cornwallis said, with their sticks and pitchforks. Well, these upstart colonials, my goodness. With their squirrel guns, (laughs) their muskets, okay? (laughs) And no ammunition. No ammunition. (laughs) No clothes, really no uniforms, no tents, no ammunition. Their own hunting guns, that's all they they had. So they pull back, though, from Trenton. They figure, okay, we've got to pull back because we know Cornwallis is coming back after us. They pull back across a small stream that's called the Pink Stream. It's about 10 or 12 feet wide. 
On their backside of them, though, is still the Delaware River. Now, you would think that Washington would cross that river to put the river between he and Cornwallis. Right. You don't want to get caught between those two. No, but they crossed the Assunpink, and they were going to, the intent was to cross the Delaware. But when they got there, this Delaware that had been freezing at the point when they crossed over, coming back, however, there were huge chunks of ice in this. There was no way they could cross this river. So they set up their battlefront right there at the Assunpink. The British with Cornwallis came up, and for three or four days, there was a major conflict back and forth. At one point on the third day, for some reason, we don't know exactly why, but there was a small bridge that went across this stream. Washington decided to get up on his horse and go to the top of that little bridge and stop. On his white horse. On his white horse. So he got it, went up the top of that bridge, stopped, and stared at the British. Well, maybe it's because symbols are important, and his men needed a symbol. I don't know that dead symbols are necessary, (laughs) but yes. It's just a a thought. (laughs) But he did. He stared at them, then he turned around and went back. So yeah, I I do agree with you. I think this was Washington telling his men, we can do this. Have courage. Have strength. And maybe a little in your face to the British. A little bit. (laughs) Deservedly so, because the British were a bit snooty about this. Well, on the fourth night, Washington realized they're coming after us tomorrow. We can't hold them off anymore. So in the middle of the night, he held a war council with all of his officers. And they had a, a major problem. They had captured all of these, this ammunition, the, the, uh, cannon? the cannon, yeah, the cannonball, the weaponry from Trenton. And they brought it back with them. They needed it desperately. And they were going to move on to Princeton. But they couldn't move any of this weaponry, especially the cannon, because there had been a warming trend and there were 18 inches of mud. And I don't care how many oxen, how many horses you have, those cannon weighed thousands of pounds. You weren't going to move them. No, they were too heavy. So they're meeting and trying to decide what to do with it. Do we just leave this weaponry and take our men and run? We really can't but you afford can't to get do it that. Back if you do You're that. not going to get it back. And at the moment that Washington asks his men, what do we do? Something that some people would say is chance, I choose not to call it chance, I'll call it providence. At that very moment, the wind changes from the south, and it comes in from the north, and it's not just a cool, cold wind, it's a frigid blast from the north. Within one hour, those 18 inches of mud had frozen solid. Washington then decides, okay, we can get out of here, we can bring our cannon with us, but let's send General Mercer with about 500 men ahead of us on towards Princeton. Because they could move faster. They could move faster. And they had to get to Princeton because Princeton held what they needed desperately still, more cannon, more gunpowder, more cannonballs, more weaponry. And they so had to capture a, that. A warehouse or a, a cache or something there. there. They had to capture. Okay. So off went General Mercer with about 500 men. They're marching in the middle of the night. They march all through the night. And they're marching all through the day. They get to about noon, and these men are exhausted. They're tired. They didn't realize, this is not funny, but it's kind of funny. They didn't realize that the British had men at Princeton. And their commander, Cornwallis, had said, we want you, British, in Princeton to go back down to Trenton. So what you had was Washington's men going from Trenton up to Princeton, and the British men going from Princeton down to Trenton. They were passing each other. These men are tired, they're probably chatting along with each other. Somebody, somewhere, looked to their left or to the right because they were literally marching parallel 
going opposite directions. With woods in the middle. Woods, but only about 100 yards in between them. I don't know if it was the British or the Americans, but if the British looked to their left, what they saw, somebody had to have said, hey, look at that. Who are those guys? (laughs) And the Americans had to say, Sam. All those guys in the red coats over there. That's right. Very easily seen in those red coats. They looked as well. at each other and like, what is going on? Yeah. Their officers realized immediately that this was going to be a major battle, and there was a hill right next to them. So the race then was to see who made it to the top of this hill first to have the high ground. Now, as usual, you look at the Olympics, the Americans always win in the sprints, and our guys <laughs> beat the Brits to the top of the hill. Partially also because the Brits were loaded down with everything that we didn't have. Right. Um, they had, you know, they, they had their gunpowder, they had all their weaponry and stuff, and our guys were stripped down to pretty much just the clothes that they had on their back. We beat them to the top of the hill, lined up against each other, 500 British with all of their weaponry and their wonderful red coats that just screamed in the middle of a green forest, shoot me, oh, shoot me. Don't you wonder about the logic of that? Some commander had to say, these red coats are not a great idea in the American woods. Well, they brought over that European, yeah. you know, we're, these are our colors. We're going to wear them everywhere. Proudly. Even if it has a sign on the back that says, I'm dumb, shoot me. <laughs> but here they were, the Americans without their uniforms in their this regular clothes, because most of these were a militia, 180 feet away from them, facing them directly, were 500 Brits with all their, their fine weaponry and, and uniforms. And the battle began. It carried on fairly even for about 30 minutes. Eventually, the British began to push the Americans back, push them back, push them back. General Mercer was in charge of this group of militia. And finally, the Americans broke and ran. Mercer tried to hold his men there. He couldn't do it. The Americans ran. Now, Washington is a short distance back. He's bringing up the rear with all of the cannon and the weaponry. Washington's coming up the rear, bringing up the rear, and he hears this noise ahead of him. And we all know, you can tell the difference between when there's been, for instance, a car wreck and there's been a party. You can hear the verbiage that's going on and the sounds that are going on. Washington could tell this was not good. Right. Full, full bore. He races his horse up to where his men are running away. As he's running forward, he's got dozens and dozens and dozens of men running past him. He's yelling at them to turn around, face the enemy. They won't do it. So Washington does what Washington does, whatever is necessary. Some people will think this is harsh. It's not. He did what he had to do. He pulled out his horsewhip, and he horsewhipped some of the men to get them to turn around. Now, he didn't have to horsewhip many, because Washington at the time was a big man, 6'2", 200 pounds. And if you're next to a guy that's getting horsewhipped, you're probably going to turn around too. Mm -hmm. And not not only that, but there was a great deal of respect for Washington. Massive. There was a combination of respect and fear for the man, which is what's needed many times to be a great leader. Washington then organizes his men and starts pushing them forward. As he's moving forward now with this organized line moving towards the British, he comes across General Mercer, who you mentioned earlier. General Mercer was a a great general, but he was also one of Washington's closest friends. And lest there be any confusion about what would have happened to Washington if the British had gotten a hold of him, you can tell by what they did to Mercer. The Brits thought that Mercer was Washington. Mm. They'd not seen him up close, but because he was leading this and he was at the head, they thought it was Washington. They bayoneted Mercer 13 times. Mm. They asked, they demanded his surrender. He would not give it. So 13 times they bayoneted him. A little further on, as Washington moved his troops forward more, 
He found another one of his commanders that was bayoneted seven times. This is what the Brits would have done. Washington moves them forward. The British move back, move back, because all of a sudden there's something different now. Mm -hmm. There's this big guy on a white horse, white hair, in a blue uniform with his gold saber on the side that commands a different type of respect. All of a sudden they realize this is Washington. So the Brits move back and move back. Finally, they stop. The Americans line up in front of them. They are exactly 180 feet apart from each other. Oh, so close. 500, 500 facing each other. During this period of time, the Brits in the American Revolution always fought their battles. The generals stayed in the rear. Mm -hmm. They felt like they could see the battle better and direct it. Also, it was very convenient. You didn't normally get shot as much if you Correct. got 500 or 1,000 guys between you Correct. and the enemy. And, and you do want to keep those who are creating the battle plan safe, you know? Sure. You, you could use that excuse <laughs> if you're the Brits. But yeah, that was, we'll take that and go with it, okay? But yeah, it helped them direct things. Washington didn't fight that way. His officers fought from the front. So what Washington did is he was equal with his troops, and they thought he would stay there with them. He didn't. Washington then, when his troops were totally lined up and organized, Washington charged directly into the open space between the American forces and the British forces and placed himself exactly between them. Now, remember, they were only 180 feet away from each other. He placed himself 90 feet away from the British and 90 feet away from the Americans. Which is like, what, half of a football field? 90 feet. You're talking 30 yards, not even half of a oh, football field. Yep, 30 yards away. He's facing the British. Now, the British at this time have to be thinking that God loves them <laughs> because here sits the commander of, of the, the revolutionaries horses. on his horse. A white horse. A white he's, horse. He's not a small man. No, 6'2", like I said, 200 pounds. He's right there. All 500 muskets raised to fire at him. All 500 of the American muskets raised also to fire at the British. The problem is... Who's between the Americans and the British? He is. He is. And, and friendly fire is every much a thing as being shot at. It is. But there has to be a moment that Washington thought to himself, what was I thinking? Yes. <laughs> We've all heard that, that country song. And I can't tell you the whole words. All I know is the gist of it is this. A young man picks up a young lady and they're going on a date. And the father says, you have her back at midnight or else. Well, the young man gets carried away and he doesn't get her back until 2 o'clock in the morning. Dad is waiting there at the house with a shotgun. Young man drops off the young girl, whips around his pickup and takes off as dad is firing a shotgun at right. him. And the young man is thinking to himself, what was I thinking? Yes. There has to be a moment when Washington's adrenaline or something died down and he thought, what, what was I thinking? Well, because he knows if he is killed, the cause of freedom dies. There's no one to pick up the reins from that. And you're exactly right. There's no question there. The British know this also. If we get Washington, we are famous, we are rich, we and can go back to England and the be heroes. Done. Or we can stay here in America and be rewarded with lands right. and money. The Americans are thinking, if they have to be thinking, what was he thinking too? Because the Americans are thinking, if Washington dies, we lose this right now. We become slaves to the British. We lose our lands. We will probably spend the rest of our lives in prison ships right. or executed, beheaded or hung. They wouldn't shoot you because as traitors, they didn't shoot you. They hung you or beheaded you. Washington's aide-de-camp was with him. Now, that's his assistant. And we have a primary source that tells us exactly what happened at the moment that the gunfire went off. The enemy then halted and dressed their line also. 
and the order to fire passed simultaneously along the ranks of both. Washington still sat midway between the two. His eyes turned on the foe. One of his aides, horror-struck at the sight, dropped the reins upon his horse's neck and covered his face with his cap so as not to see his commander fall. A crash of musketry followed, and when the smoke lifted, there sat Washington, to the amazement of all, unharmed. The next moment his loud shout roused over the din of battle, and swinging his hat overhead for a banner to those who pressed after, he spurred against the flying enemy. His favorite aide wept like a child at the spectacle, while Fitzgerald, another aide, and the finest horseman in the army, dashed up to him and in the suddenness of his joy exclaimed, Thank God your excellency is safe. Try to imagine the picture. 500 muskets on one side, 500 on another. You know, you've seen from movies, Patriot or whatever, what it looks like when a musket fired. Smoke goes off. You have 1,000 muskets firing all at once. Horrific sound. Everybody is waiting then. And horrific smoke. You can't see. Probably literally 10 feet in front of you, let alone 90 feet in front. So they wait. And it had to be one of those moments in time when everybody froze. As the mist from the musket smoke begins to clear, they can't see. They're peering to see what's happened to Washington. Not to see whether he's dead or not, because he's dead. But to see what it looks like. As the musket smoke begins to drop down, what they see is Washington. Still mounted on his horse, still facing the British, but with his saber pulled and pointed at them. And this is where you have to step back a little bit in time. There was a point where General Cornwallis could have captured Washington one evening, but he decided to wait with another battle. And one of Cornwallis's officers said, if we wait till tomorrow, the fox will escape. Because that's how they referred to Washington, that he was the fox, because he was always getting away from him. Keeping that in mind, smoke clears, Washington is still facing the Brits on his white horse, his saber pulled, and with his little sense of humor, he did have a sense of humor after all, he calls out to his troops, it's a fine day for a fox hunt, and (laughs) off they go after the Brits. They defeat the British there, chase them down, it's a brutal battle, but they win. They then march on to Princeton, take the cache of stores there, the cannon, the weaponry, everything there. And on they go. These are three of the most important battles, even though there were numerous important battles, three of the most important battles that took place in the American Revolution, because if they had not won, if Washington had died, the American Revolution would have ended right there on January 4th, 1777. And we would all be speaking with British accents and singing God Save the Queen. Would be. Wonderful lady that she is, but I'll take what we have. There is a movement as you know, to cancel out great American leaders. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, even Abraham Lincoln. I do not know how you cancel and leave George Washington, the father of America, the greatest general and one of the most noble men we've ever had, how you cancel him out of American history and still have American history. It was thanks to George Washington. Well, we certainly have to admire his bravery. Underneath every act of bravery, there's always that pit in your stomach of fear. 
And yet he moved past that and led his troops in a way that caused us to win. I don't know how you can identify Washington in one word. It was, it was everything. It was his character. It was his heart. It was his soul, his bravery, his, his faith in God. Everything that made up Washington that made him so unique that lifted him. And this is not what people say today. It's not the correct thing to say politically, but it lifted him above other men. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to take the totality of a person not just cherry pick this thing or that thing. It's important to take the person as a whole and take a look at what made them tick. And we all have strengths and we all have faults. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for our next story of Threads of Liberty. Not always politically correct, but always correct. Using only primary source stories of those who were actually there. You're listening to Threads of Liberty. Today we're going to talk about one of the more interesting stories out of Texas history. I think it's a story that well, it's is... It's not just Texas history. Well, it, it's well, American history. But it's well known in Texas, and I don't know that it's as well known elsewhere other than in Texas. But it's an extremely important story for Texas. So here's the question and for it, you. Who was the commander at the Alamo? Almost everybody will tell you it was Sam Houston. But it wasn't. He wasn't there. No. Okay. No. It was Travis. William Travis. Yes. And almost every single major Texas town you go to has a street called Travis Boulevard or Travis Street. Is that because of his contribution at the Alamo? Yes. Well, I didn't know if he did other things. That that was the <laughs> he reason. did other things, but that was his major contribution. Yes. But there are uh, lessons to be learned from this story. I think for our culture today, for our youth today, of courage, perseverance, staring hardship in the face, and making the right choice. Lots of things that this story embodies. Well, there's also what's going on today in America. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're tearing down statues, we're tearing down memorials, and we're cancel. Is they what do they call it? Cancel, cancel culture. culture. Yep. Canceling out the culture that has made America what it is. Yeah, and it's I, not just culture they're canceling out. It's our history. It is, but that's the decision that I think we're asking everybody to make: is are the people that we're going to be talking about worthy to be remembered in our culture, to be remembered by memorials, or should they be dropped from from our memory? That's the question that needs to be asked. Right. Right. So launch in here. Tell us about the story of the Alamo. Well, you guys obviously know it because we're sitting here. But what year? <laughs> what year are we talking about? No, we're not talking about 1836. We're talking about 1824. Stephen Austin was the very first that went to the Mexican government and said, hey, nobody wants to live in Texas. Will you let me bring in North American settlers to settle it? So they agreed to that. At that time, however, there was also, because of that in part, was the Mexican Constitution. 1824, that constitution was established that gave the same rights to anybody in Mexico, but it was especially important to those North Americans that were coming in to settle Texas. Well, and you could have been under the impression that since the constitution was similar to America's, that it would be treated the same. Well, they were supposed to be. But it's a story of of two different constitutions. It it is two different constitutions, but it's very much much like the American Revolution, which we'll get to. But this constitution guaranteed... Mexicans, most of the rights that American citizens fought for and had in the American Revolution and post-American Revolution. Long story short, for about 12 years, 
American citizens came into and became Mexican citizens into Texas. They had the rights, they had the privileges that they were guaranteed. Little by little, as Great Britain did to the colonists, little by little, the Mexican government started to take those rights away from what were called Texians. Was it always called Texas? It was called Texas. It was the northern part of Mexico, yeah. But they called themselves Texians because they were from Texas and they were part Mexican, but they were also really considered themselves still Americans. Long story, though, is that, or the short story is that they finally got to a point where the Mexican government was beginning to take away those rights and privileges. Texians hit a point and they said, that's it. Just like our forefathers, and this is what everybody needs to remember, that these, in 1836, these Texians were the sons and the daughters of our founding fathers, those that had fought against Great Britain. In the American Revolution. In the American Revolution. So as they saw their rights and privileges being taken away, there was something familiar about this. They recognized what was happening because they'd grown up with this. They'd watched their fathers and their mothers fight for those very freedoms. 1836, Texas declares independence at a place called Washington on the Brazos. The Brazos is simply a river. Washington's a small town. They appointed General Sam Houston to be in charge of the, the Texican army. His main headquarters was at Goliad, Texas. But that's not the story here. The story is a little place in San Antonio that was a Mexican mission. Mm -hmm. And 130 Texians under the leadership of William Travis decided that this was the point where they were going to draw their line in the sand, which literally became a line in the sand. They were kind of a ragtag group, weren't they? No, they were Texans. <laughs> which is a ragtag group. Little bit, they were a little bit of a ragtag. A lot of people came A lot of people came to Texas because they wanted the land. Mm -hmm. It was a chance to start over again. Also, Texas, you know, they passed some laws that said you can come here and not be prosecuted for anything you've done elsewhere. So there were a few of those people, but not many. They were Texans. But they went to San Antonio, this little mission that is called San Antonio de Bejar. We know it as, as the Alamo or in San Antonio, Texas. And a lot of people have visited that little monastery, if you will, that mission. To me, it's, as you and I have talked, next to churches, synagogues, and temples. It's one of the most sacred places that I've been to. When you walk in, they ask you to remove your hat. They ask you to whisper when you talk inside. And there's a reason for that. And I guess that's what this story is. But in 1836, William Travis and about 130 men decided that was their line in the sand. They went there, they took over this little convent, this mission, and they said, this is ours now. And they declared independence. It really ticked the Mexicans off. They and, were hot. And Santa Ana was... Santa Ana was, was the, uh, he was the emperor, if you will. He was also the main general. He controlled everything. Santa Ana was... But you can understand why the Mexicans were mad. Sure. All of a sudden, you've got these people that had come in 12 years earlier, and now they're saying we're declaring independence and we're no longer part of Mexico. Well, we're Mexi independent. Mexico's probably thinking, hey, we, we invited you here. Now you're stomping your feet. Kind of like Great Britain did <laughs> a little bit earlier. But 130 of, of William Travis's men were there, Santa Ana and his four to 6,000 marched northward. As they marched up to San, to San Antonio, to the Alamo, William Travis and a number of incredibly famous men were there with him. Name uh, some of them. Jim Bowie was there. With, of the? Of the Bowie Knife. Bowie Knife. And you really love to know that he was there because it's kind of a cool story, except if you know how it ended. It's a very sad ending. 
and that was Davy Crockett. Davy. <laughs> Davy Crockett. Crockett. Yes. You're too old and young to know that song. <laughs> but they were there. And as Santa Ana marched north, these men were getting ready. Now, this, this mission was not, it wasn't a fort. It had three sides that were, that were built of huge and very thick adobe walls. But the fourth side, there was nothing there. So they built a barrier of cedar posts and branches to try to keep the Mexicans out. The Mexicans arrived after weeks of, of marching northward. They could have gone around San Antonio. They could have gone around the Alamo. But understandably, they didn't. It's like, this is our country. We're not going to march around you. We're going to take you out of here. And that's what they decided to do. So these 130 to 140 Texians watched as week after week after week, more and more and more Mexican soldiers came in. And if you've ever been to the Alamo, you know, if you stand on the wall, on one side of the wall, there's a walkway that goes around on the inside and you can stand there and the wall itself will hit, just to hit you just about chest high. And you can picture these Texans watching all 130, 140 of them as the Mexican armies got there. And they kept coming and they kept coming and they kept coming. At one point, William Travis realized, along with Jim Bowie, that they couldn't do this on their own. There's just no way. I don't care how good you are. So they sent a message through a, a writer out to Sam Houston and Goliad about three hours away. And the message was, we need help desperately. We have four to 6,000 Mexicans with Santa Ana, who was known as the Napoleon of the West. At least that's what he called himself. <laughs> but he was good. And he had the men to fight with. Travis sent this message out to Houston and said, we need help, send it quickly. Houston couldn't send anybody. The messenger arrived and Sam Houston had to send a message back, I can't send you any help. The reason being, Houston knew at the time he only had 300 men. And he knew that his men only had one fight in them. They didn't have enough weaponry, they didn't have enough ammunition, they didn't have food to carry on a very long fight. So he needed time. And he sent a messenger back, and the message was, buy us time. We need to gather more men, more weapons. So buy us time. So the writer that had been sent out rode back through the Mexican troops and made it back into the Alamo, and he delivered this, that message. Fortunately, another 40, 45 Texans did arrive, which brought their number to 185. And that's the number you'll always hear about. There was a letter sent out by, at that point, by William Travis. I believe it's known as the most heroic letter in, mm -hmm. in, um, in American history. I think you can hear in this the desperation, but also the determination that they were going to stay and they were going to fight. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment of cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot. And our flag there, still wait, waves. Wait, there's Texas for you. Yeah. Somebody gives you an ultimatum. It was called the Cuello, and it was cutthroat. If, if you don't surrender, you're going to die. And so how do the Texans answer? With a cannon shot. Fight a cannon back at them. And our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character 
to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 89 or 90 bushels and got into the walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. What you have there is the spirit of Texas. You also have there the spirit of America. They talk about history and they say that we stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us. And those Texians had the same spirit, same fight in them that the founding fathers had. I want to make sure though, because you know we kind of joked around the fact that Mexico had invited these settlers there. We did comment that they were disregarding their own constitution and their treatment of these settlers. But it kind of sounds a little bit like, you know, we came in and then we said, oh, well, we want this. So what was the principle that was guiding these men? The very same principle that we found in in the men of 1776. We have certain God-given rights. And those rights will not be given up. And it is, as he says here, we would rather die then give up those rights. Seven, the men of 1776 fought for that, and the men of 1836 were fighting for it again. Another parallel that we see is they confess the hand of God. At the very end in that PS note, he also says, by chance, he didn't say that they found the 90-some-odd bushels of corn, but it was by the hand of God. And so even then, they knew and could feel that protection, just like men in the colonial times. Yeah, this, this, and this wasn't a case. They knew the situation they were going to face. They yeah. knew that Santa Ana was going to march up. They knew they were going to have to fight him. They knew he wasn't going to go around San Antonio. So it was a difficult decision, but it was one that, that is, it's victory or death. We win or we die. We would rather die than give up these freedoms. Because the Republic of Texas hangs on it. Yes, it does. San Antonio, as we mentioned, got there, and they started a 13-day siege. Santa Ana. Yeah, Santa Ana, thanks. 13-day siege. They attack, they withdraw, attack, withdraw. Davy Crockett kept them at bay with his men and their long rifles. Get close enough, we'll get you. Kept them at bay long enough. Finally, however, on the 10th day, William Travis, commander, pulled everybody together in the square there at the Alamo. He pulled out his saber and he drew a very long line in the sand. And after talking to them about their freedoms, after talking to them about their forefathers and their rights, He gave him the opportunity to step across that line and fight with him or to leave. One man left. Everybody else stepped across except Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie could not step across because he had typhoid fever. He was in a cot. He ordered four men to pick him up and carry him across the line. So they did. Were there any women there? There were women there. There were some that were working to clean things for the troops. As you mentioned at one time, Mitch, there were nurses there. There was a wife there also. This is how we know about this story. Mm -hmm. But on the 10th day after this order was given, the men realized that they weren't going to get help. They realized this was... Travis especially knew that the end was coming quickly. On day 12, William Travis told his men that now was the time to write letters home. To your family, your wives, your children, your mothers, your fathers. 
say your last goodbyes. Travis knew that most likely the next day, the 13th day of the siege would be it. They'd been able to fend off the Mexicans pretty well up until then. Matter of fact, they hadn't, the Texans hadn't lost a man up until this point. But this was it. So the men sat that evening and they wrote letters home. One of those letters was written by William Travis himself. He wrote it to the family that was taking care of his son while he was there. And it is one of the more heart-wrenching letters that you'll hear. March 3rd, 1836. Take care of my little boy. If the country should be saved, I may make for him a splendid fortune. But if the country be lost and I should perish, he will have nothing but the proud recollection that he is the son of a man who died for his country. So this is the question we're asking in these podcasts. Should we remember these men and women? Should we tear down their monuments and memorials? Should we eliminate them from history? Or do they merit a place in American history? Is there a reason for including them? I would submit that absolutely the 184 men that remained at the Alamo must be remembered. That night at the 12th day of the siege, as they wrote these letters home, many of them talk about standing up on that plank that went around the inside of the walls of the Alamo and looking out at the fires. There was no question that they were going to die. You have 184 against 46,000. It wasn't a maybe. It wasn't a might that will survive. The Mexicans already said, if you do not surrender, and this was at the beginning, you will die. Even if you surrender when we break in through the doors of the Alamo, it's too late. You will die. I've wondered what it is or what it was that they were thinking about the 12th night. What was it that made them stand at the walls and look out over those fires of the Mexican army and decide that they were going to stay? What was it that made them stay when they thought about their wives and their children, William Travis and his son? What was it about this liberty, this freedom thing that many of them had come to Texas for? They'd gotten away from things that they needed to get away from. They were here to start over again. And now this dream that they had was coming to an end. Travis knew and most of the men knew this was it. This was their last night on this earth. Why did they stay? What was there inside of them that made them say, I will give up my life for your freedom, for the liberty of people that they would never know or the people that they loved and they would never see on this earth at least. It makes you marvel at their courage. It makes you marvel at their love of freedom. This is why it needs to be remembered. They stood on the shoulders of their fathers and mothers from 1776 on. And if there's any shoulders that we need to stand on, it's shoulders of men and women like this. Why they stayed, it's a different type of a person that is willing to give up their life, but they did. On the morning of the 13th day of the siege, the Mexicans attacked. It wasn't really a battle. It lasted 18 minutes. Mexicans, Santa Ana had planned the attack incredibly well. They came in from four sides. They sent in their cavalry on the side that had the sticks and the, and the cedar posts. They overwhelmed the Texans. The first to go down was William Travis, who wrote this letter about his son. They found Jim Bowie with between a half a dozen and a dozen Mexican soldiers around his cot. He had had two pistols and his Bowie knife. 
And that's what freedom meant to that man. The fight was over. The word got to Sam Houston. A couple of days later, the Mexicans burned the, the bodies of all the men that were there. Davy Crockett, we know, was the last one to die. We don't know exactly how he, he died. There's some really cool stories about it. I choose to pick one of those. <laughs> but he was the last one to go down. Sam Houston got word a couple of days later. He had at this time 700 men. For six weeks, they went on the run, staying just a step ahead, a half a day's journey ahead of the Mexican army in Santa Ana. After six weeks, it came to a place called San Jacinto. And that is where Texas, with 700 men, defeated Santa Ana and his army. With the cry of... Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. And that battle took, ironically, 18 minutes. As well. Thank you. I hope that people can see from this emotional account of the Alamo, the courage that it took, the bravery that it took, the belief in principle that it took to be willing to withstand the weeks that Santa Ana was there, to not give in mentally, to not give in physically, but indeed to be willing to die and lay down their life for the principle of freedom. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for our next story of Threads of Liberty. 